encourage you to get a Bible and let's turn to the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to make a quick run through chapters 8 through 12 and use the statement in chapter 12 as a launching point for our study this morning. 1 Samuel chapters 8 through 12. In chapter 8, you'll remember a very familiar story, and that is Israel demanded a king like the other nations around them. Notice verse 7, or verse, uh, verse 5 rather. Now make for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Now that's important. What I mean by that, I want you to see their attitude of Israel, and Israel's attitude was, we want a king. It's not just that we want a king, but we want to be like the nations around us. We don't want to be any different than anybody else. So give us a king like the nations around us. Well, chapters 9 and 10, Saul was chosen and anointed as king. Saul is chosen and he is anointed as the king, the text tells us. But let's go even further to chapter 12. Chapter 12 now, we have Samuel giving a speech at Saul's appointment. When he is appointed as the king, that was their request, we want a king like the other nations. Chapter 8 had said that's actually a rejection of God. So Samuel makes a speech about all of this. So what does he say? Three points I want you to see. First of all, he starts with the rebuke that this nation has a history of forgetting about God. He talks about their history of being off in Egypt and when they forgot the Lord, when they came out of Egypt, that is, when they, verse 9, forgot the Lord their God. This nation has had a history of forgetting about their God and when you ask for a king, you're still forgetting about your God. Secondly, in his speech, he made this point. He said, here's a warning. Things are not going to go well if you don't fear God. If you fear God, things are going to go well for you and for the nation. But if you don't fear God, it's not going to go very well for the nation. The third point in his speech was some instruction in verses 19 to 25. Now in this instruction he said, serve the Lord with all your heart. What you, what you must do, you've asked for a king, you've got a king now. But this nation is in trouble. And the reason it's in trouble is, You've got a history of forgetting about God. It's not going to go well if you don't fear God and you've shown you don't really fear God by asking for a king. So what you have to do is you need to serve God with all of your heart. Notice verse 20, but serve the Lord with all your heart. Now verse 21, don't turn aside after empty things. Don't turn aside for then you will go after empty things that cannot profit or deliver for they are nothing, he said. Now beginning at verse 20 or dropping down to verse 25, if you don't fear, then you and your king are going to be swept away. If you don't have ultimate respect for God, what's going to happen, verse 25, you, if you do wickedly, you will be swept away, both you and your king. Well, that's exactly what happened. They got their king, and then they had king after king after king. The nation divided before they had king after king. And as they had all these kings who went south morally and spiritually, they went south, the kings and the nation were swept away. But I want us to focus at verse 21. Now you know the context in which it says. Let's look at verse 21. In verse 21, he said, and do not turn aside, that is, don't turn aside from God. Serve God with all your heart. Don't turn aside from God. If you do, for then you would go after empty things which cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. 
I want you to notice some of the phrases in verse 21. The empty things, the empty things cannot profit, and they are nothing. Let's define them as per the context. Let's let the context define for us. What does he mean when he talks about empty things? If you don't stick with God and you turn aside from God, then you're going to go after empty things. Things that cannot profit, they cannot deliver, and they are nothing. What is he talking about? Well, anything that is contrary to the Lord, this very verse. Look at this very verse. Do not turn aside. Turn aside from whom? God, according to verse 20. You serve God with all of your heart, but don't turn aside from serving God with all your heart. For if you do, then you'll go after empty things. So it's anything contrary to the Lord. Doesn't matter what that is. If it's contrary to what the Lord has them to do and what the Lord has them to obey, they're turning after empty things. But let's go further. Verse 23. Look at verse 23. Anything contrary to good and right way. Look at verse 23. He said, I will teach you the good and right way. So Samuel said, I'm going to instruct you the word of the Lord, and then as I instruct you, I'm going to tell you the good way and the right way. Anything contrary to the good and right way is that which is empty that cannot deliver, and it becomes nothing. Go back to chapter 8, at least in your mind. There was the tendency to want to be like the other nations. We want to be like them. And God said, that's a rejection of me, actually. So what you need to do is follow me. Don't turn aside from following me, because when you do, you'll follow after empty things. Here's what I'm learning from that. I'm learning it's a tendency to turn to what other nations are doing, and that would include idols. When you go away from God, you're going to turn to empty things that cannot profit. Let's look at some other translations of those phrases. The New King James, which I'm using, says, don't go after empty things that cannot profit for they're nothing. The American Standard says, do not go after vain things that cannot profit for they are vain. The New Century Version says, idols are of no use. They can't help or save you for they are useless. And the New American Standard 95 says, don't go after futile things they cannot profit or deliver for they are futile. I want to suggest to you the Bible in many, many places warns about useless and worthless things. Have you ever bought something that you thought would be of value and you get it home and you start using it and it doesn't work and so therefore you deem it as being it's worthless, it's useless. It's of no value. It doesn't do any good for me. Well, the Bible warns about useless and worthless things. We're not going to notice the details of every verse. I just want to get a of how often the Bible talks about worthless and empty and useless things. Here are a number of passages that use the word worthless. The psalmist would talk about turning from looking at worthless things. Jeremiah the prophet would talk about false vision, a worthless thing that is false prophecies. The same prophet, Jeremiah 16, uh, 19, lies are worthless and unprofitable things. There is a worthless shepherd. So there are a number of things that are said to be worthless. There are a number of passages that use the word empty. Preaching can be empty. Your faith can be empty. Furthermore, the Bible talks about deceiving you with empty words, trust in empty words. There's another block of passages that use the word useless. Dispute uh, in Titus 3 about unprofitable things that are useless. Arguments that are useless. Some things are useless. Your religion can become useless, James 1. The help of a man is useless, and we need to turn from useless things to serve the living God. 
The Bible even talks in the book of Isaiah about dogs that can't bark. Like a, a guard dog. You get a guard dog and he can't bark. He doesn't bark. He's useless. He's worthless. Or clouds without, or wells without water. Can you imagine having a well but it doesn't have water? It's useless. It's worthless. So some things are worthless, some things are, are empty, and some things are indeed useless, and the Bible warns about all of that. Now let's go back to our text in 1 Samuel chapter 12 and in verse 21. Do not turn aside, for then you will go after empty things that cannot profit. Let's talk about empty things that cannot profit. There are a number of empty things that cannot profit. In other words, there are things that we may pursue after, we may even have in our possession, we may have our hands around things that are, are empty things that can't profit and they are useless or they are worthless. Don't look at three categories of things. Let's start with this. Let's talk about some things that are good things. Nothing wrong with those. But there's something lacking if we don't have something to go with that. For example, what if you had building a new house and you have water lines run to your house but they're never connected to the water supply of the city. Now you've got water lines but there's no water in it. Well the water line's good but it's worthless if it doesn't have water in it. It's useless. It's of no value to you. And there are a lot of things that we may have that are good but they're worthless if there's not something that goes with it. They're good but they're lacking. Like what? Material without the spiritual. The material without the spiritual. You see, the material things, our money and our possessions are essential and they're good. In fact, we can't live without them. We've got to have all material possessions around us. We may not have to have all that we'd like to have. We may not need all of that, but we have to have material possessions and food and money and all those kinds of things. But let's notice some passages now. The emphasis should be on the spiritual over the material. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. This is what Jesus is saying in Matthew chapter 6. Let me paraphrase before we get to the text. Jesus is saying this is the way it will be in my kingdom. If you're going to be in my kingdom, this is the way it will be. There needs to be an emphasis on the spiritual over and above the things that are material. So notice what he says beginning at verse 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where must and roths destroy, and thieves break through and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and thieves do not break through and steal. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. What's Jesus saying? In my kingdom, your emphasis needs to be on the spiritual far above that which is material. Is material things, are they important? Certainly so. Let's go to Luke chapter 12. There was one who came to Jesus in Luke chapter 12 in verse 13 and said, Master, tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me. You remember that story? Tell my brother to divide his inheritance with me, verse 13. And Jesus said, Who made me judge or an arbitrator over you? Take heed, beware of covetousness, for one's life does not consist of the abundance of the things he possesses. In other words, your life is not all about the material, absent the spiritual. Look at verse 21. So is he, talks about one who is, who is poor toward God, so is he who lays up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. Here is emphasis on the material over the spiritual. One more passage. 1 Peter chapter 3. This is on the here and the now. On our bodies and, and our arraignment. 
and how we appear before men when we don't worry about how we appear before God. He said, do not let your beauty be the outward adorning of the ranging of the hair, wearing of gold, or putting on of a... His point is on emphasis. He's not saying you can't wear apparel or you can't arrange the hair or even wear the gold, but don't let your emphasis be on how you look. Where does the emphasis need to be? Look at verse 4. It needs to be the hidden person of the heart with an incorruptible ornament of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. Here's what I want you to see. Then when we have far more focus on the material, we indeed are empty. And we have things that are worthless. When our emphasis is more on our money and our houses, when our emphasis is on our clothes and our looks, maybe even how we do in school, when that's of greater importance than it is with reference to our spirituality, we're pursuing things that are empty that cannot profit and they are useless. But here's something else. Here's something else that's good but lacking, and that is faith without works. Faith is very important. It's essential. It's good. In fact, without faith, we cannot come to God. He that comes to God must believe that he is. So faith is very, very important. James chapter 2, if you'll turn there with me, faith without works, the text says, is dead. Look at verse 14. What does it profit, brethren, if a man say he has faith and doesn't have works? Can faith save him? That is, can that kind of faith save him? The answer is obviously no. Look down at verse 22. Verse 22. But see then how that faith working together with his works and by works faith was made perfect. Verse 24. That you see how that by works a man is justified and not by faith only? Drop down to verse 26. For as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Here's the picture. James says if you say I have faith, I, I believe in God, I believe in Christ, I believe in the revelation of God, but you're not willing to act upon that faith that's worthless and it's useless. Let's go to chapter 1, same book. Look beginning at verse 21. You see, hearing the word without doing is useless. Hearing the word without doing. Notice verse 23. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like the man observing his natural face in a mirror and he observes himself and goes away and immediately forget what manner of man he was. Just like you look in the mirror in the morning and you see you have food on your face and your hair is out of place and you do nothing about it, your use of the mirror is useless. So likewise, the person who looks into the Word of God, they hear the Word of God, but they don't do it, then that becomes useless to them. You see, if we believe the Bible, and they say, I believe the Word of God, and I believe this to be God's Word, and I believe it with all of my heart, it to be the truth, and then I'm not acting upon that and doing what it says, my faith is useless and it's worthless. It's something good, but something lacking. I'm pursuing after empty things it cannot profit. Here's something else. Worship without focus. Worship is good. In fact, outward action in worship is essential. And therefore, it's good. Let's turn to James chapter 4, John chapter 4 and verse 24. Worship must be offered sincerely. It's not enough for me just to offer some act of worship, some overt act of action, some ritual that I go through. The worship must be from the heart. Jesus said in John 4, 24, our worship must be in spirit as well as in truth. Go to the book of Isaiah with me, if you will. Isaiah condemned the people. God, through Isaiah, condemned the people for their formalism. In other words, they go through the form of their religion, but it wasn't and it wasn't from the heart. Notice what he says at verse 13. Verse 13, the people draw near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips. 
Oh, they're going through the actions of worship. They're going through the actions of praise. But notice what he says, but have removed their hearts far from me. Their focus isn't there. Now, verse 13 at the end, he said, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandment of men. What does that mean? Well, the New American Standard says it was a tradition learned by rote. The NET says it was nothing but a man-made ritual. In other words, they're going through the motions of praising God, but their mind and their heart and their focus is far somewhere else. And so now they're going through a tradition that was learned by, by rote. They're just going through the motions of that. So here's what I'm learning from that. It's possible to offer without uh, offer mere outward service without there being focus from the heart. You see, when we go through the motions of worship without focus, our worship becomes empty. We're pursuing after empty things that have no profit. They're useless. But here's something else. There's, when there is marriage without commitment, we're talking about things that are good but something is lacking. We're pursuing after empty things that have no profit. When we have marriage without commitment, you see marriage is good and honorable. He that finds a wife finds a good thing, the proverb writer would say. And marriage is honorable, the Hebrew writer would say. So marriage is good and marriage is honorable, but a great marriage is a marriage that involves commitment to God and a commitment to your marriage. Let's go to Romans chapter 7, verses 3 and 4. A woman which hath an husband is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. What is that passage telling me? That marriage involves three beings. There is the man and his wife and there is their God. And this commitment they have is he is bound by God's law to his mate. She is bound by God's law to her husband. So consequently they're bound to each other. There is a commitment to each other because of their commitment to God. So what I'm suggesting to you is a great marriage involves a commitment first of all to God to follow his law and follow his will and a commitment to one another. But I want to suggest to you that marriage is empty. And marriage is of little value when, for example, there is no commitment to following God's plan. You've got marriage and you enter into a marriage relationship. You say, isn't it wonderful we got married? But if there's not a commitment on the part of both parties, we're going to follow the plan of God. We're going to do what God wants. We're going to govern this marriage according to God's plan. We're going to settle all of our differences by what the Bible teaches. And we're going to raise our children according to the Bible instruction then you may have something that's worthless and useless. When you have a marriage, but they're not going to communicate one with the other. The husband does whatever he wants and she does whatever she wants. There is no communication with one another. They don't try to please one another. And when they're not devoted to each other, to, the, to not only the salvation of each other, but pleasing one another, as 1 Corinthians 7 would so argue, then they may have something of little value and something that's empty and something that's useless. But here's something else. We're talking about things that are good, but something is lacking. Worthless things that have no profit, that cannot deliver, and they're useless. And one of the things I want to suggest to you is a Bible that's not inspired. Now, all of us would agree that the Bible is a good book of stories and morals. Most every one of your friends may talk about that. They say, oh, well, I would agree the Bible is a good book, full of good stories. Oh, interesting stories. Encourages people to be honest, to live pure. Good moral book to follow. 
But I want to suggest to you that it claims to be far more than that. Let's open our Bibles to very familiar passages, starting with 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 16. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That is, all the Scripture, both Old and New Testaments, are in breathed by God. That is, God breathed the very, the very words that are given. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Bible makes the claim that it is inspired. We'll take, not take the time at this moment, but we can go back and take the writers of the Old Testament and of the New Testament as well, and they will say things like, The Spirit speaketh expressly, or the Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, His word was on my tongue, or the Lord spoke to me and the Lord said they were making claims that they were speaking for God. The Bible makes the claims of being inspired. But let's turn to another passage. If you didn't turn to 2 Timothy, I would encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and in verse 13. Paul talks about the things that were hidden and were a secret and not revealed have now been revealed. And notice he says at verse 9, I have not seen nor ear heard nor entered into the heart of things, uh, entered into the heart of man the things that God has prepared, meaning the things that were in the mind of God, man did not know until God chose to reveal them. Now, verse 11, he illustrates no one knows what's on your mind until you reveal those things in your mind. So likewise, the mind of God has been revealed. Now, verse 13, these things we also speak not in words, which man's wisdom teaches, but which the Holy Spirit teaches, comparing spiritual things with spiritual. That is the claim of verbal inspiration. That is, Paul is saying the very words that were written were the words that were chosen, not by man, but were chosen by the Holy Spirit. So here is a claim of verbal inspiration. So here's the common thought. The common thought among people today, and even among some Christians, is the Bible is from God. God wrote it, but it's not verbally inspired. God didn't write every word of it. God gave man the thought, and man makes up the words himself, and so it is not inerrant. So here's the idea. That means the word of God is now subject to error. That is, God told Paul what to write, but Paul may have overstated his case. He told James to write, but James may have said it wrong when he said, not by faith only. He may not have meant for him to say that. And the story about Jonah and the well, that may not be a true story. It may not have happened like that. Or maybe the serpent speaking to Eve, that may not have happened just like that. That may be exaggerated and overstating the case. So any part of the Bible is subject to question. You want to question the well? Then question that because it's not verbally inspired. You don't like the story over here of the serpent speaking and you think maybe that's exaggerated? Then reject that because it's not verbally inspired. And so when we have a Bible that we can say, you know what, this is a good book, but it's subject to error, you've got a worthless book in your hand. It's of no value to you. You're following after something that's empty and something that's useless and something that is of no value because it's subject to error and it's subject to question. But let's move to another category now. We're still talking about empty things that cannot profit. They're worthless, they're empty. Sometimes they're things that are good, but they're lacking. But I want to suggest to you that sometimes there are things that we like, but the thing that I like may end up destroying me. It's not good. It's not something God approves of. It may not be something I need, but I like it. Let me give you an example. We want a king. We like a king. We want to be like the other nations around us. We want a king. Having a king ended up destroying them. They want idols like the other nations around. 
They liked their idols. They wanted their idols. Their idols ended up destroying them. There are things we may like and we want to embrace and we, we say, that's what I want. But it ends up destroying you. Like what? Well, here's one. It may be doctrine without proof. It might be doctrine without proof. You see, doctrine that is taught and doctrine that is believed must be based upon evidence. So that puts responsibility upon the speaker, but it also puts responsibility upon the hearer. Because doctrine that is taught and likewise doctrine that is believed must be rooted upon evidence. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of God. Let him put his finger on the verse. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, 13, I believe and therefore have I spoken. We also believe and therefore speak. But notice the phrase he used, According as it is written, I believe and therefore have I spoken. He believes and speaks according to what is written of God. Can you put your finger on the passage of what may be taught or what might be believed? I want to suggest to you there are some doctrines teach exactly what people want to hear. 2 Timothy 4 warned about those who have itching ears and heap to themselves teachers. What does that mean? They have things they want to hear. They have doctrines they like. And so they find the teacher that's going to tell them what they want to hear. They want to hear their marriage is okay. They want to hear that, that some of the things that other people call sin is not sinful and it's okay. Dancing is all right. Drinking is okay. They want to hear things that modesty is not bad. Immodesty is not bad. And they want to hear things about that, uh, what they believe and what they think is, is true. Well, in Isaiah chapter 30 and in verse 10, said, the people cried out saying, Speak unto us smooth things. In other words, we want to hear something that makes us feel good about ourselves. Some doctrines teach exactly what people want. But I want to suggest to you that doctrine without proof is empty. If you teach a doctrine where there is no evidence, you believe a doctrine where there is no biblical evidence, you're following after that which is empty and that which is useless. Ephesians chapter 5 warns about this. Let no one deceive you with empty words. That's false doctrine. So when they're teaching you something and there is no basis for it, it's false concept, then they're giving you empty words is all that is. Oh, you can find someone who teaches what you want. You can find someone like Colossians 2 and verse 8 who have empty deceit. They're deceiving you. Beware of empty deceit, the, the writer would say. 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 14, this teaching concerning the resurrection, there is no resurrection from the dead. If that be true, then your preaching is empty. Your preaching is vain. Your faith is empty also. If that doctrine be true. But here's something else that we may lack, but it will destroy. And that is a practice without authority. You see, our practice must be according to the authority of God. Colossians 3 and in verse 17 says, Whatever we do in word or in deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So whether it's in our teaching or in our practice, we need to find the authority of Jesus Christ that authorizes that practice in religion. We must abide within the doctrine of Christ, Second John and in verse 9. But quite often we find a practice we like and we deem it as good. Is it good? Because I like it. I like what this church does. I like what this church practices. I like the actions that it takes. I think it's good for the community. I think it's good for mankind. So we deem it good because we like it. 
And yet if it's not according to the doctrine of Christ, we lose our fellowship with God. Go back to 2 John 9 with me, if you will. 2 John and in verse 9. Whosoever goeth onward and abideth not in the doctrine of Christ hath not God. That is, if I'm practicing something I have deemed as good, I like it, it's a practice that I really like, but it's not according to the doctrine I lose my fellowship with God. Jesus would warn in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 7, those who practice lawlessness, he would say, depart from me. That is, they're acting without law. He would say, depart from me, I never knew you. But here's something else that we may like, but it destroys. And that is an education that destroys our faith. An education that destroys our faith. Secular education is good and is important. We have people among us that have master's degree. We have had people who had doctorate degrees. There are numerous Christians across the country that have higher education, doctorates, and some have more than one doctorate. Nothing wrong with education. Education is good and is important. But what I want to suggest to you, there is a danger that humanistic teachers and professors can work against one's faith. Let's go to a couple of passages now in the Old Testament. That could happen in the lower grades. That could happen in high school. That could happen at the community college. That could happen at the university. Where here is a teacher, on whatever level they may be, it may be a professor who may be saying things and doing things that is designed to be destructive to the faith of those who claim to be Christians. It's happened time and again. I want to suggest to you that it's altogether possible to have empty knowledge. Not all knowledge that claims to be knowledge is true knowledge. Is it all correct? Go back to the book of Job. Now remember Job's friends, and let me footnote here about Job's friends. Job's friends, I think we <coughs> mislabeled them. They were wrong in what they said. That's true about Job. That is, they were saying, Job, you're a sinner. They were wrong about that. But these men were good, godly men who are misdirected about Job. Much of what they said, not everything, but much of what they said was good Bible doctrine. For example, they would teach that, that sin has consequences. That's good Bible doctrine. But their application was wrong when they said, Job, that means that since you're suffering that you're a sinner. That's what that means. They're wrong about that. God corrects that toward the end. But I want you to notice a couple of passages that, that imply empty knowledge. Chapter 11, this is Zophar speaking at verse 12. He said, for an empty-headed man will be wise when a wild donkey's colt is born a man. In other words, he's saying, Job, you, you claim to have knowledge and you claim to be right, and you are an empty-headed man. Well, he's wrong about that. But his principle is true. That an empty-headed man, man, there is such a thing as an empty-headed man who people deem to be wise, they'll be wise when a donkey gives birth to a man. That's an interesting phrase, isn't it? Go over to chapter 15. What I'm trying to suggest to you is there's possibility that there are some who have knowledge, but it could be empty knowledge. And these good godly men who were wrong about some things, that's right, but they're good godly men, acknowledge that there is such a thing as empty knowledge. Chapter 15 in verse 2, should a wise man answer with empty knowledge there is such a thing as empty knowledge well let's go a little bit further it's possible for a higher education to destroy one's thinking do you remember the accusation against Paul much learning hath made you mad that doesn't mean much learning makes people mad 
makes them crazy. But it's something interesting about the fact that the charge was made, Paul, you're a highly educated man. He was schooled at the feet of Gamaliel. He is a highly educated man. And it may be, the charge was, though they were wrong, that your knowledge and your, your education has destroyed your thinking, they thought. It's just showing that's a possibility. That's all I'm trying to show. But here's one that m m comes even a little closer to home. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 18. It's talking about Hymenaeus and Philetus, who strain concerning the truth, saying the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Now, I know this to be true, that here are some men who once held to the truth, but they drifted from the truth. And know what were they teaching? They're saying the resurrection is already past. That's all they were saying, to my knowledge. Now, what arguments they were making, I'm not sure. What, what reason they gave, I'm not sure. But they were teaching a doctrine that says the resurrection is already past. It's in the past, not in the future. Now, what was the result of people being exposed to that kind of teaching? Notice verse 18. Are you reading with me? And they overthrow the faith of some. Some people's faith is overthrown. That's what I'm trying to drive at. And I want you to see that sometimes education can destroy our faith. In fact, sometimes the pressure is on to conform. And we're not prepared to take that kind of pressure. Now, turn with me to 2 Chronicles, if you will, chapter 13. I recognize this is not talking about education. This is not talking about thinking necessarily, but it's a principle. That's what I'm driving at are some principles. 2 Samuel chapter 13, <coughs> 2 Chronicles read, rather. I've got the right passage on the screen. I'm just turning to the wrong one. 2 Chronicles 13 and in verse 7. I'm talking about Rehoboam here. Notice what the text says. And worthless rogues gathered to him and strengthened themselves against Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, when Rehoboam, now notice this wording, was young and inexperienced and could not withstand them. Notice the pressure that was on. It's not that they were putting pressure on an experienced person who had been through the battles before and knew how to withstand that pressure, but they... They gathered around him and they put a tremendous amount of pressure upon Rehoboam. Notice the wording, when he was young and inexperienced. That happens in the graded ages. That happens in high school. That happens on the university level. When young and inexperienced, it's not a put down of young people. What it's saying is they're not, they've not been through the battles about their faith so that their pressure is put on for them to conform to that. What I'm suggesting to you, that's happened time and time and time and time again. There are people who've gone to school and they've lost their faith. The more education they got, they lost their faith. The more they studied at the feet of men and they were amazed at the knowledge of mankind, they've lost their faith. Time would forbid us to go into the details of the number of preachers that wanted a higher education and they ended up losing their faith. They have education, but it destroys their faith. Here's something they like, but it destroys. They're pursuing something empty that cannot profit. Sometimes it's something good, but it's something lacking. Sometimes it's something I like, but it ends up destroying. But here's the third category. Things that are common, but they're sinful. Sometimes pursue after something that everybody else is pursuing after and they're doing the same thing but I'm doing what they're doing but I'm pursuing after something that's empty and cannot profit but it's sinful like what envy would be one of those things envy is very common 
We're often envious of one another's success, maybe their possessions, maybe their abilities, maybe their knowledge, and sometimes even their family. We're envious. They've got the family I wished I had, and so we become envious of them. They have things I wished I had. Well, I want to suggest you envy is sinful. Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And as you're turning there, I remind you that Galatians 5, 21, which is on the screen, is that catalog of sin. We won't take the time to turn. That's that catalog of sin that those who do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of heaven. And one of those sins that's mentioned there is envy. And so envy is sinful. It's common, but it's sinful. If we pursue after envy, and I'm envious of another success, and I spend my time focusing on that, then I'm focusing on that which is empty. 1 Corinthians 3 and in verse 3, the Corinthians were condemned for being carnal, for where there is envy and strife and division among you. There was bickering and arguing and fussing going on among the Corinthians, partly over the spiritual gifts, envious that another had a gift they wanted. I wished I had his ability instead of the one I have. What I want to suggest to you is that when we're pursuing after envy, we're pursuing after something that's empty and worthless. You're wasting your time. But here's something else. Common but sinful. And that's worry. Many people, including some Christians, are over-anxious. And they're uptight. Maybe it's about money. It may be about family. It may be about the world situations. And on we go with our list. Moulton and Milligan says, worry is over-anxiety. The word's translated anxiety, but they give emphasis that it's over-anxiety. In other words, over-concerned. We, we need to be concerned about family, concerned about money, concerned about the circumstances of all that's going on in our world. That's true. But over-anxiety is the idea of worry. Let's go to Matthew chapter 6. Worry is contrary to faith. Here's why it's sinful. Worry is contrary to faith. Look at Matthew chapter 6. Jesus, in the context of materialistic thought, in Matthew chapter 6, says at verse 30, Now if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is and tomorrow is cast into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Go back to verse 25. Do not worry about your life. That's that over-anxiety. Don't be filled with over-anxiety about food, clothing, and shelter, and material things all around you. Don't be worried about that. Then he says, oh, you have little faith. It's contrary to faith. It accomplishes no good. Look at verse 27. Which of you by worrying can add one cubic to his stature? How can you add even, even a cubic to your milepost? How can you live any longer? How can you make your life any better? You can't by worrying. It doesn't help anything. It's useless. This worry is empty and it's useless. Here's something else that's very common. And that is bitterness. Human relationships are plagued by bitterness. What is bitterness? Badak says it's animosity, anger, and harshness. Do you have somebody that there's a relationship with where you have this animosity toward them? You have a harshness in your dealings with them. There's anger that you have. I like what Barclay says. Barclay says this bitterness is a resentment which refuses to be reconciled. It's a resentment. But there is no reconciling. No matter how many apologies are made, how much uh, someone says, I'm sorry, 
how much they may repent. You refuse to be reconciled. There is no changing that. Bitterness is sinful. Let's go to Ephesians chapter, chapter 4, verse 31. Talking about putting off the old man. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Put that all aside. Hebrews chapter 12, let's talk about how that destroys us. Chapter 12 and verse 15. Look diligently lest any of you fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up causing trouble, and by this many become defiled. Take, take very careful, give very careful attention and give heed that you don't let bitterness spring up and take root. Because when it does, it's going to trouble you. You'll be defiled. It causes problems. I want to suggest you bitterness is empty and worthless. You fill your heart with bitterness and you can't get over that? Can't put it aside? You're following after something that's worthless. Here's the last thing. Let's talk about gossip. Gossip is common, but it's sinful. It's not uncommon to spend time with idle talk and slander and unfounded accusations. Meddling. Where we talk about what other people are doing, that's none of our business. Meddling in their affairs, none of our business. Or telling stories for which we have no basis or destroying their reputation when it's unfounded. Let's go to the book of Proverbs. Let's notice two or three passages here and the lesson will be yours. Proverbs 11, if you will. And in verse 13, slander is wrong. That's the point. Verse 13, a tell-bearer reveals secrets. A tell-bearer reveals secrets. See, a gossip tells things that ought not be told. They're dishing out information that really ought not be shared. Tell, bear, reveal secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit conceals the matter. Gossip is sinful. Look with me to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 13, talking about the younger widows. It's better for them to marry, the text says, because they might wander from house to house, not only idle, but gossips and busybodies, speaking things which they ought not. One last passage. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 12 and in verse 20. Paul writes to Corinth, the second letter. And what he says in chapter 12, if I might paraphrase, that I'm coming to you and I hope when I come I don't have to rebuke you. In other words, get your, get your act together before I get there. And if you do, I won't have to rebuke you, but if it's not together, then I'm going to rebuke you. So here's some things you need to clean up, perhaps. I fear, look at verse 20 that when I come I may not find you such as I wish and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions and backbiting. I'm, I'm afraid when I come there's going to be a number of things I'm going to have to address and one of those things is backbiting which is so destructive. I'm afraid I'm going to find that when I get there. You see gossip is empty and it's worthless. Let's go one more time to our text where we started. 1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 21, Samuel warned, if you don't heed to God, you turn aside after things that are empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are nothing. Sometimes we're pursuing after empty things that cannot profit. Like what? Good things, where there's something lacking. Things we like, but they destroy. Common things, and yet those are things that are sinful. Things that cannot, but they are indeed useless.
There may be one or more present who's not a Christian, who's not a child of God. Would you come believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God? Would you repent of your sins, acknowledge your faith, be buried in the waters of baptism for the remission of sins? If you're subject in any way, would you come while together we stand and while we sing?